uh, kind of the, the main focus of why we're here, but there's something more to it than just that. Us being here together, being around being around like-minded individuals that are trying to get to the same place has something beneficial to our own individual spirits. So many of you after worship services will, will shake my hand and say something along the lines of, you know, I really needed to be here today. It was good to be here. Something along those lines. And I know it's not just because I get up here and preach. Because um, I know that I get something out of being here and being front with my brothers and sisters. It's hard being a Christian. It's hard living a faithful and Christian life. There's a lot of things out there in the world that get you down. Financial problems, work problems, family problems, relationship problems, on and sin problems. And yet, we're able to get a reprieve from all of that to come together here and be around other Christians that lift you up and support you. That's why it's important to be here. It's important to be here not just to make the attendance numbers higher, but because we need each other. We need these relationships. So let me encourage you, be around Christians more. Look for more opportunities to be around your brothers and sisters. Maybe it's attending a Bible class or study that you haven't um, participated in before. Maybe it's coming also the Sunday night instead of Sunday morning. Maybe it's having people at your home more. Going out to eat after services. Be around Christians and those relationships will help strengthen your faith. You know, there's something I was thinking about, and it's, it's something kind of silly. And it, it's silly and kind of embarrassing that I'm going to tell this fact, but I'm thinking I'm probably not the only one that has ever had this happen to them. You're laying in bed, and you're looking at your cell phone. And you're holding your cell phone up over you. Maybe you're reading an article. Maybe you're watching a movie, looking at pictures, checking social media. And it's late. You're tired. Your eyelids get heavy. You start to nod off, and you drop your own cell phone onto your own face. That's happened to me before, but not just once. Multiple times now, I have dropped my own cell phone on my face. It reminds me of when you're little and you grab somebody's hands and go, quit hitting yourself, quit hitting yourself. I'm hitting myself in the head with a cell phone. And from what I understand, this is a fairly common occurrence. That there's a lot of documented injuries out there of people dropping their own cell phones on their faces. Because they land right in your eye or or tooth or something along those lines. It's dangerous. Having a cell phone can be dangerous. In fact, statistically, I found this because obviously you shouldn't text and drive. You know, it's dangerous and so on. Statistically, the distracted walking causes more injuries than texting while driving. That means that statistically, you're more likely to like fall in a manhole while walking with your cell phone than, than getting in a wreck while having your cell phone there with you in the car. Walking, apparently... It's pretty dangerous. But our theme for the year, I was thinking about how this all ties together here. Our theme for the year is running the race. We're not talking about walking the race, right? That wasn't what's on the banner when you walked in here into the church building. Our whole idea is is running the race, not walking the race. And since we're all out there trying to run the race, we understand that running is harder than walking. Have you ever tried texting while running? That's a challenge. You know, I used to like to run on Sunday afternoons, and I haven't done it so much lately. And people would text me and ask me questions. And I'd be running and be replying to texts. Usually it's my preacher buddies, and we're talking about our sermons and stuff from Sunday. And you know what? It's about impossible. I have to stop. I can walk and text pretty good. I might trip and fall, but running and texting is a challenge. You know, because you got to move your arms with you. You end up looking like a crazy person when you're running with your cell phone up, you're trying to text. So I'd stop, I'd walk, and I'd text, and then I usually wouldn't start running again. But we understand that running is harder than walking because more speed equals more danger. The faster you go, the more likely it is that you're going 
to get hurt, right? We understand it with athletes. These guys that can sprint really fast, they're prone to like muscle tears and hyperextensions because of how fast they're moving their body. Just the force that is exerted makes it more dangerous. So then you take that to us with our idea of the spiritual application of our theme. If we are running the race, the Christian race, we're not walking it, we're running it. We understand that some of those things that distract us while we're walking can be amplified even more while we're running. So I ask you the question then, what distracts you? What gets you off course? What causes you to stumble? What causes you to mess up when you're running that Christian race? Well, I think we'd all understand that the main thing that causes us to get off course when we're running the Christian race is sin. Those distractions are sins. Sins get us off course. Sins are dangerous when you're running the Christian race. So the lesson this morning is going to be about this very simply. We need to work on removing the distractions so that we can run the race. You know, maybe it's time to put down the cell phone a little bit and focus on the goal. Maybe it's time to stop being distracted by everything else in this life and understand that we are running an important race and if we're going to get to that finish line, we've got to remove those distractions from our life. With that in mind, turn in your Bible to the Old Testament, specifically to the book of Judges. Now, we don't spend a lot of time in sermons in the book of Judges and maybe we should do it more because there's some great character studies in the book. If you're new to the Bible, it's in toward the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Vegas, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. There you'll find it. I know it's one of those, you might have to peel your pages a little bit. They might be stuck together because you haven't used that chapter in a little while. Next week, we're going to be looking at the book of Amos, and I'll give you guys at least 15 minutes to find that one. But, you know, as we look at the book of Judges, specifically, I want us to look at the story of a judge, probably the most familiar judge in the book, and that is Samson. And turn over there to Judges chapter um, 12, and we'll be beginning there in just a bit, or chapter 13. But you're probably familiar with the story of Samson, at least in, in just passing people reference it. Well, most everybody, if you think of Samson, you think of strong guy, long hair, right? I mean, that's pretty much what we get of when we think of Samson. He's the guy with the long hair. He's the guy that was strong. And okay, that's true. But we're going to talk more about him here in a second. But chronologically, where this lies is this is after Garden of Eden, after the time of Moses. This is after the Israelites are freed from Egyptian bondage. They go through the wilderness wandering time. They enter into the promised land during the book of Joshua. They conquer that promised land. And then God's people exist there in the land of Canaan. But things aren't going very well for them. Some of the original people that were there in the land are still there. They didn't defeat all of them. And because of that, there's a lot of temptation, there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of drama that takes place. And ultimately, the book of Judges is a big cycle. Israel does good, they're blessed. Israel does bad, they're punished. God raises up a judge or a spiritual leader to lead them back to godliness so that they can be blessed again. And the book's very cyclical in that regard. Well, Samson is one of those judges that is raised up here in this book to help lead Israel to victory and to provide them guidance. So let's read. Um, Judges chapter 13, and we'll start in verse 3. It says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or any strong drink, nor to eat any unclean thing. 
For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So she has this, she's going to have this child, and this child is to take on what is known as the Nazarite vow. A separate setting apart for religious service where you don't touch dead things, you don't drink wine, you don't cut your hair, and it's kind of symbolic of the pure relationship that you're supposed to have as being a leader and being close to God. So the woman's going to have a child, the child is going to be a Nazarite, and God blesses her with this child, and Samson is born. Um, He is born, verse 24, it says, The woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. The word Samson itself means strong one. So here you have a strong one being born. Samson being born as promised by God to help deliver the Israelites specifically from the Philistines. An evil nation that caused them a lot of heartache. God's going to help deliver them through the hands of Samson. Verse 25, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord began the stir in him in Mahanandan between Zorah and Eshtael. You don't need to know those names of those towns, but ultimately you need to know this, that God was with Samson and that the Spirit of the Lord stirred within him and he was empowered by God. God made a promise. He delivered upon that promise. He gave the woman a child. The child was named Samson. The Sam- Samson took on the Nazarite vow, and God was with him. But the story of Samson doesn't stop right there. Samson has a big race in front of him to run. He's supposed to lead the Israelites against the Philistines and defeat them. But there's a distraction in Samson's life. Remember, distractions get us off course. Distractions are dangerous. Samson's big distraction that we see rear its ugly head time after time again in his life is lust. Samson has a problem with seeking after and lusting toward the opposite sex. He likes women. And to a point where they are distracting him from his work and causing him to sin. Let's keep reading. Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Samson's lust to or not for the, the women of Israel that he is supposed to have a relationship with, but he has a lust for foreign women that the Israelites were not supposed to intermingle with because these are idol worshipers. These are the people that were their enemies. And yet, he sees a Philistine woman And he comes back and tells his father and mother, I saw a woman in Tilma, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. So he sees this woman and he wants this woman and he tells his mom and dad, get her for me. I want her as a wife. He's pretty demanding. You see that a lot as well in his life. Verse 3, Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among your people that you go take a wife from the, the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, and listen to this line right here. This isn't the line of a man who's thinking godly thoughts. This isn't a person who wants to be a great spiritual leader. This is a person who is guided only by lust. He is distracted off course. He says, get her for me, for she looks good to me. Okay? I mean, want to put it in modern vernacular. He thought she was hot, and he liked her, and didn't care that she was ungodly, didn't care that she was a Philistine. He decides that she's the woman for him, and he says, go get her for me. So he goes, and he takes 
this woman. Verse 5, Then Samson went down to Tilma with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Tilma. And behold, a young lion was roaring toward him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore up the lion. He beat up the lion. So Samson is still empowered by God, but he's not a perfect individual. He's being guided by lust to go down and get this woman of the Philistines. On the way there, a lion comes in, attacks him, and he rips the lion up. Okay? He says, like one tears a young goat, which I don't have any experience tearing young goats. I've always thought that verse was kind of odd, but Samson's able to defeat this lion. So he goes down verse 7, and he finds this woman, and she looked good to Samson, still guided by lust. So he's guided by lust to go get himself this bride. On the way there, he defeats this lion, probably feeling pretty good about himself. He takes this woman to be his wife because she looks good to him. And on the way home... He sees the carcass of that lion. And it's been there a while. And there's hornets in there and bees in there. And they've produced a hive in the body of the lion. And there's honey in there. And, and Samson, prideful, arrogant Samson, as he's walking by, says, well, that honey looks good. I've already taken a woman that I thought looked good. If I see food that looks good, I might as well take that too. So what does he do? He reaches into the carcass of that lion and takes out some of the honey to eat. Now, if you didn't already know so, this is already a violation of the Nazarite vow. He was supposed to never be around anything dead. Never touch a dead thing. That was part of the vow that was made way back when. God was going to bless him if he kept that vow. That was the vow the mom made. That was the vow that was made in his life. But yet, here you have Samson being guided by lust of the flesh. Woman looked good. Lust of the eyes, you know, the food looks good there, the honey looks good, pride of life, he's too arrogant to follow the vow that he made, reaches into the body of the lion and takes of that honey that he's not supposed to have. Here you see the distraction of the lust taking him off course. Ever seen that happen in someone's life before? Ever seen anybody or know of anybody or maybe yourself where a certain relationship that you desire took you down a very sinful road? Did with Samson. Well, she looked good to me. Now he's violating his vow, committing sin, arrogantly disregarding you know, the commitment to God. But it goes on. Verse 12, Samson's now with his companions and his family, and he makes a, gives them a riddle and challenges them. If they can solve this riddle, he's going to give them lots of clothes and things like that. Kind of an odd challenging, but you see Samson's arrogance here and pride, and Samson's wife is upset about this riddle. Why are you challenging my people? Why don't you just give my people you know, this clothes? Why don't you bless them and help them out? And Samson is worn down by the, the nagging of his wife here so that he gives into her and in verse 19 it says then the spirit of the lord came upon him mightily and he went down to ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle so he needs to now fulfill this riddle he goes and fights people takes their clothes to give them to other people and he's just an angry bitter person and he goes to his father's house and when he gets there his life is now falling apart all around him it says, but Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. So God is using Samson here in different ways to punish these Philistine people, but yet at the same time in the background of all of this, you have lust-filled, prideful, arrogant Samson not doing what he's supposed to do. 
And his life goes on in chapter 15. He fights the Philistines. He does some neat feats. He ties torches to the tails of foxes and sends them in there to burn their crops down. He defeats them, you know, with the jawbone of a donkey in chapter 15 and verse 16. He fights down an entire army. And here you have Samson. The text tells us in verse 20 that he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, if the story stopped there, we would assume that, okay, the lust distraction, that sin distraction was overcome. Samson's now empowered by God and he's doing what he should do. But here's the deal with distractions. If we don't completely overcome them, they have a tendency to come back. You know, you think about distracted driving, maybe your cell phone. I know for me, if I put my phone in the cup holder there and I hear a little bloop, bloop, it's really hard to not look at who just texted me. It's usually all of you guys too, so maybe you shouldn't text me while I'm driving. I'll let you know when I'm going. It won't happen. So, but, so I want to know what happens. So the distraction comes back and maybe if I just glance at it a little bit, I'm not looking at, or the, my favorite is I'm not actually talking on the phone if I hold it over here for some reason. I feel like I'm less guilty of breaking the law. So here's the problem with, with Samson's distraction. It came back. He didn't overcome that. It just kind of went away because the situation changed. But he never overcame the sin. See, sometimes we'll have sins in our life that, that go away temporarily just because our situation changes. But we never actually overcame them. We never actually conquered them. Maybe we are in a, a sinful relationship and we just break up and so now that sin's not there anymore. But it doesn't mean you overcame the, the problem, right? That's what happens with Samson. He's judging Israel for 20 years, but his distraction of lust still exists. Chapter 16, it says, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. He goes to another town sees a foreign prostitute, goes into her. Now, it finds the people there, the locals find out, the people from Gaza find out that Samson is there. And they go and they surround the place and they lay in wait for him all day and all night at the gate of the city, saying, let us wait until the morning light and then we will kill him. So the people in Gaza, they don't like Samson because he's already defeated many of their, their kinsmen already. So Samson's there in town being with a woman he shouldn't be with, fulfilling his distraction of lust that he has, his sinful desires, and they're waiting around to kill him. He stays there all night, and now it says he lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them down along with the bars, and he put them on his shoulders and carried them up on top of the mountain which is opposite of Hebron. Pretty awesome feat. A powerful man with the gift of God that he has in him, but he's still a sinful man. God used him here. He defeats these individuals, but again, he still didn't get rid of his sin problem. So the people there, the Philistines, come up with another idea. Verse 5, The lords of the Philistines and came to her, came to the, the, the harlot named Delilah, and they came and said to her, Entice him and see where his great strength lies so that we might overpower him, so that we might bind him and afflict him. And then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So they go to the harlot now and say, hey, maybe you can help us get this man, Samson. Tell us why he's so strong. What is the source of his strength? So now she's in on this situation. And so she tries to woo Samson. Verse 6 
she asked him, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson lies to her. Samson tells her that, well, you've got to bind me with seven fresh ropes and then I'll be like any other man. So she waits for him to fall asleep and then she has him bound with these cords and then she yells, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And when he gets up, his strength is still there because he lied and he breaks the ropes and they can't stop him. Verse 10, Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. Which, you think he'd already have learned by now that there's something strange going on here. I mean, she's asked him, where does your strength come from? And, and she, he tells her, fresh rope. And she has him tied up with these ropes. And then says, the Philistines are here. And he wakes up and goes, there's this rope here. But he breaks the rope and defeats the Philistines. Doesn't go to his head why they're there. Or maybe he's just not thinking straight because he's distracted by lust. Does that ever happen? Yes, it does. Happens to all sorts of people, even people that are supposed to be God's leaders throughout history. So she asked me, Samson, you didn't tell me the truth. What, what causes your strength? So he says, bind me with new ropes. First it was the dry ropes, now it's new ropes. Same kind of thing. So when he falls asleep, she has him bound, and the Philistines come on in. She goes, oh no, Samson, the Philistines are here. He gets up, he breaks the ropes and kills the Philistines again. Doesn't doubt why the woman's doing this. He's still distracted by the fact apparently this, this beautiful lady is enthralled with him in some way, so he just keeps going back to her. Verse 13, Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you've deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it with like a pin, I'll become weak and be like any other Man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his hair and wove them into the web. She fastened them with a pin, and then she said, The Philistines are upon you. And he awoke, and he still got up, and he pulled the pin out of the loom and out of the web. Again, he's distracted by lust. He gives in to her, tells her a false idea of how he can be defeated, and he's not defeated. So then finally, verse 15, she says, How can you say... I love you. Which, not to get into the psychology of all of this here, but here you have Samson. He just went into town, right? And saw a woman of ill repute outside and went into her. And now he's proclaiming his undying love for her. Okay? This is a man that's really distracted by lust. He says, she says, how can you say you've loved me when you have deceived me these three times? So then she pleads with him and begs him daily so much that he is annoyed to the point of death, verse 16, and he tells her everything. He tells her the truth finally, that if you cut my hair, if a razor comes to my head, I will be in violation of my Nazarite vow, and I will lose all of my strength, and I will become weak like any other man. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he told her all that was in his heart, he sent, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come once more, he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees and called for her a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair, and she began to afflict him, and his strength left. So while he's asleep on her lap, she calls a guy to come in and shave his head, and when that happens, the strength leaves him. Because in verse 20, she says, Samson! The Philistines are upon you. 
And he awoke and he says, it's alright, I'll go out like any other time. And I'll take them out. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The Lord departs this man who's supposed to be a great man of God. This man of God who's plagued by sin loses all of his strength. The Philistines capture him. They gouge out his eyes. Okay? He's now blind. You want to take rid of the lust problem? Now it's gone, I guess, right? Can't see anymore. So his eyes are gouged out. He's bound with chains in the prison. So there he is, locked up in a dungeon, eyes gouged out, suffering. But while he's there, the hair on his head begins to grow back. And as the hair on his head grows back, his strength begins to return. And the Philistines, while Samson's in prison, decide it's time to have a great party because we finally defeated this Samson. So they're having a big party, this big feast, and they decide, verse 25, hey, let's bring Samson in, the great strong man, so that we can you know, parade him around like a war trophy and make him dance for us or something and say, ha ha, look at Samson. So they call Samson in, but Samson's strength is returning. And in verse 26, he tells the boy who's leading him, says, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests so that I might lean against them. So Samson leans against those pillars and he presses those pillars down. He grasps them. And in verse 30, he says, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushes down the building. The building collapses, kills all the people that are in there as well as himself. That's the story of Samson. Not usually the one we tell the kids in Sunday school. We just say, guy with long hair was strong and defeated an army with you know, the jawbone of a donkey. But here's a man who's plagued with sin. And these sins ultimately cost him his life. He cost him his life. He could have defeated the Philistines without dying. He didn't have to be blinded. He didn't have to be enslaved. All of that happened because of the distraction of lust in his life. So what can we learn? What's some application then that we can make to us, to me, to you? Well, number one, and this is one that I see here, I think it's really important. God's powerful leaders can be overcome by distractions. And if they can be overcome by those distractions, we can too. Here you have someone handpicked by God to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Philistines. And yet, he's defeated by just lust. If he could fall, we can fall too because I'm not empowered by God you know, with the strength of an army and all of that. If he could fall, I can fall. Also too though, we understand that with that, we must conquer our distractions before they conquer us. In his early life when he gave in to the first bride, that Philistine woman there, he should have learned, but he didn't. When he went into Delilah and she called the Philistines, he should have learned, but he didn't. The second, third time, you'd think he would have learned. He never conquered the sin. He never got rid of that problem. It was just temporarily on hold, but it was still there in the back of his mind. He never overcame it. And with that, then we understand that there's consequences to actions. His lust cost him his sight, cost him his freedom, cost him his life. There's consequences to our actions. And at the same time, you also see how God can work here as well. Because Samson is not a godly example for us, but God is able to use ungodly people to accomplish His will at times. So just because someone is doing a good work does not mean that they are necessarily living a good life. And I think we do that too often where we say, well, 
That person's a, a church leader or a Bible class teacher or, or a preacher or an elder. And now I see that there's a sin in their life. I thought they were perfect because they're doing these good works. Even God's leaders can succumb to sin and God can still use us in spite of our sinfulness. But us, we need to work on removing the sinful distractions in our life so that we can leave a legacy of faithfulness. His legacy here isn't good. Leaning upon the pillars and he crushes them down and everybody dies and he dies with them. Not a real great legacy because when everybody thinks of Samson, they also think of Delilah. They don't think of the great mighty man of God anymore. We need to work on leaving a better legacy than Samson left. So then as we conclude with our theme then this year being running the race, understand that sins will keep you from running the race. They will get you off course. They will cause you to fall. You know, that's what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. When he says, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles. Samson, time after time again, was entangled in sin. It's kind of a neat little play on the imagery there too. You know, every time he's entangled with ropes, his hair is entangled in the loom, but the thing that was really taking him away, the thing that was causing him to fall was the fact that he was entangled in sin and he needed to get rid of it if he wanted to finish the race and win. The lesson for us today is simply this. Remove the distractions so that we can run the race. I don't know what sins you struggle with. I don't know what sins in your life keep rearing their ugly head. Only you do, and God does, and maybe others that you've confessed them to. But you have to work on overcoming those. They're not going to go away on their own. Maybe you just haven't had a moment recently where you got angry, but that sin of anger is still in you. You've got to work on overcoming it. Maybe it's the lust, but you just haven't had an opportunity to fulfill that sin anytime recently, but that sin, that desire is still there. Work on overcoming it. Maybe it's hatred. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's pride. Work on overcoming those sins, removing those distractions so that you can run and finish the race. The lesson is yours. We're going to sing an invitation song. One of the elders will be up here to meet your needs. Maybe if you need help overcoming a sin that is entangling you. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You want to become one. We can baptize you into Christ today. And you can leave the world of sin behind and join this world.